So this first question is um, asking about 2 Peter 3.9, which reads, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if God desires all to reach repentance, why does he choose some not to be saved? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, a really good question. I think that um, the most helpful answer that I've heard to the question before is that um, just like you have multiple lever- levels of willing, God also has multiple levels of willing. So, for example, um, you could say that you desire to eat delicious chocolate cake and that you desire to exercise. And so in saying, I desire to eat delicious chocolate cake, you, um, if you went and exercised, it would be evident that your desire to exercise would be greater than your desire to eat the chocolate cake. And so it's possible that God desires something, but that he has a greater purpose that governs his actions than that desire. So specifically with this text, um, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's possible that that is true, and it is also true that um, God's greater will governs the final outcome. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, so how, this next question reads, how can I, as someone who's been saved, see God as good and loving without nor- ignoring the real experience of many that see the opposite side? Like, how do we enjoy our Skittles knowing that there are people in our lives that don't get to partake in that? Um, I think that sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what joy is. So I think true joy is compatible with having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart. And so Paul's answer to that question, I believe, would be, you're not going to have a happy-go-lucky constitution if you really believe these things. It's not going to be that you're just skipping through life and everything feels great all of the time, which I think is sort of our culture's view of what it looks like to enjoy anything. But I think that you're not going to be able to look at people the same way again. And um, I think that when we're honest with ourselves, all of us have problems with parts of the Bible. I mean, you read through your Old Testament Bible reading plan, and there's parts of it that you just don't like and that you don't understand and that you're frustrated by and all of those things. So maybe I, I disagree a little bit with like the complete polarization because I think that there are things that unbelievers really like about God 
And there are things that even you as a believer, if you're honest with yourself, don't like about God. And so um, I would say keep wrestling, keep fighting, keep um, asking God to show you his ways and give you his perspective more and more. These are hard questions. Wow. Yeah. Good job, guys. Thanks. Hey, it was your idea. For the Q&A. It your idea. Um, so why is prayer for unbelieving friends necessary when their salvation is predetermined? Like, why do we even bother sharing the gospel? Why is missions important if people's salvation is predetermined? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I would actually answer the question by asking a different question. Okay? If God is not ultimately responsible for the salvation of your friends and family members, then why pray for them? And so here's my argument. I think that God has written the truth of what was just taught on all of our hearts because I've never heard anyone pray at a Bible study like this. Dear Jesus, stay away from my friends. Don't cause them to believe in you or trust in you. Don't draw them to yourself. Just leave them alone and let them have their own choice. Just give them some space so that they can believe in you. What we pray is, God, would you change my friend's heart? Would you draw them into relationship with you? And to answer the other part of the question, I would say um, the reason that we pray primarily is not to change God's mind, but it is to align our lives with his will. So God actually has a greater desire for your friend's salvation than you do. And so chances are, if you're praying what's happening is that God is actually sparking through his spirit a desire in you to pray, and you are becoming a channel of his grace in order to reach other people. So you pray not because your prayer is the thing that makes God do something that you want him to do, but that prayer is actually an evidence that God's working through your life to use you to influence others. Awesome. All right, this one is more, kind of has like a philosophical bent to it. So would you say that God predestined all humans for salvation and maybe our sinful nature has separated us from that and made our own salvation something that we must choose to pursue instead? So God wants all people to be saved, chose all people to be saved, but our sin ruined it and now we have to choose what would you, how does that philosophical structure work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that when you get into specifically predestination and our choices, I think it's very philosophically unsatisfying, actually, because what I would say is that it's a tension. It's not logical to our minds. And so what I would say is God predestines that a select group of people would be saved and anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. And so 
the predestination part of it doesn't negate the human responsibility part of it. And then you would ask the question, okay, well, how do those two things work together? And so there's two sort of false ways to solve it. One false way of solving it is you say, God predestines people, therefore, not everyone has the chance to get saved. That's a very logical way of dealing with it. God predestines a select group of people. That means not everyone has the opportunity to get saved. Biblically, that's not true. Philosophically, it's very solid. On the other side of it, you say, everyone has the chance to get saved. Therefore, God did not predestine a select group of people, which again is very philosophically sound, but it is not biblically faithful. So what I would say is, God predestined a select group of people. Everyone has a chance to be saved. How do those two things work together? That's the mystery. Don't know the answer to the question. But it's a great question. But I think that when you can hold those two things in tension, that's what creates the worship. Because it's amazing. Um, this question is uh, very open-ended, and I kind of just want to see how you feel. But the question was, so what about free will? That's the whole question. <laughs> so what about free will? So what about we grab a cup of coffee after salt coming? Um, I would say it's just interesting if you read through the Bible, you will not find the phrase free will. And so I think what most people mean when they say free will is that um, they're trying to preserve the freedom of our own self-determination. And actually, no one believes in self-determination who believes that you have a cause outside of yourself. So in other words, you didn't pick your hair color, eye color, level of intelligence, where you were born, or the fact that you're alive today. Which means there's a very real sense that your entire life was predetermined. And so what we're really picking between is blind determinism and God's determinism, which God's determinism leaves room for free creatures because it's possible for a completely sovereign God to create creatures who make real choices that matter. But if behind the universe is just a blind force then all your choices are are chemical reactions in your brain. They have no meaning. So actually, I believe biblical determinism, if you want to call it that, I don't really like the phrase, biblical determinism gives people more freedom than Darwinian evolution, for example. Because if you talk to like a pure Darwinian evolutionist, they actually believe that... Um, your thoughts are just 
chemical reactions in your brain that were determined by some like primordial soup, you know, 27 billion years ago or whatever it was, whoever you talk to, you know, it's billions and billions and billions of years, 250 some billion years, right? Um, so I would say no one really believes in free will. Mm. What do you think about that, Isaac? That just I got was, really philosophical, didn't it? I was reading other questions. So okay. I assume it was one. good. Move on know. quickly. Um, this one I, I'm still reading a little bit, but um, kind of the, the tail end of the question is, um, how, how does God condemn those that don't believe in him, yet at no point in their lives did they hear the gospel? Um. The straightforward answer is read and study Romans 1. And I know that we've been through Romans 1 at Salt Company, but the basis of our condemnation is that we see the truth about God in creation and we turn away from that revelation and exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. And so the basis of lost people's condemnation is not that they didn't believe the gospel. It's that the wages of sin is death. And so I think it's really hard for us to understand, especially as modern Western people, that um, God is holy and then he takes sin incredibly seriously. So I think the best example is one man and one woman ate one piece of fruit and God condemned the whole world. Have you thought about that before? God said, don't eat the one piece of fruit. They ate the piece of fruit and God's just punishment for that one sin was everybody deserves to die. And so the reason that you're born with a sin nature is not because of something you did. It's because of something Adam and Eve did. You inherited a sin nature from them. And so the reason that anyone is condemned is because of their sin. And so the gospel, I think because we live in this culture and all that, we just take the gospel for granted. We've heard it so many times. It's just like, oh, that's great, whatever, whatever, whatever. But it is a tremendous gift and stewardship and opportunity to have heard the gospel that not everyone gets a chance to hear in their lifetime. And so the straightforward biblical answer is, if you don't hear the gospel, you don't get saved, which is why our church is dedicated to church planting. And so people have asked me the question, what about the kid in Africa? And I say, I adopted him. <laughs> right? That's my answer to the question. You feel bad for the kid in Africa? I adopted him. His name's Luke. You can come hang out with him. Right? Like, do something about it. Don't just sit back and ask the philosophical question. Like, care enough to actually go and share the gospel with people. Nice. So, kind of... Coming off of that, people who haven't heard the gospel, 
What about um, like children in their infancy or unborn children who are miscarried or adopted or um, maybe people who like it's hard to tell mentally what they're capable of understanding? What do we what do we say about those people? Are they elect if they don't yet have the facilities Mm -hmm. to respond to the gospel message? Mm -hmm. And this is incredibly important to me, right? Because like I told you in my message, I've got a daughter with a 57 IQ. She's moderately mentally retarded. And then I have a son who's at Children's Hospital in Minnesota who by the end of my talk tonight could have died, right? He's in that critical of condition. And so this is not like a philosophical question for me at all. Couple things. Um, John the Baptist, in the Gospels, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. It's actually possible for God to mark somebody out from their mother's womb. It also says in um, Psalm 2, I believe, that out of the mouth of infants and babes, God has prepared praise. And so there is a sense in which um, infants teach us something about who God is in the innocence that they have. And I'm putting innocence in quotation marks because everyone is born with a sin nature. But I do believe that there is something like an age of accountability, right? And I don't determine what that is. I don't know exactly what that is. But I think that um, based on total reading of Scripture, God is gracious. I believe personally that um, someone dies in their infancy that they go to heaven, that God just has um, mercy on them because they haven't become accountable in the same way that you and I are accountable for their sin. Great, and I think, I, I think we'll end on this one. I'm kind of coming to the end of our time, but the question is, how does the parable of the lost sheep play into this conversation of who God chases after? Like, who is the lost sheep in this situation? In this situation, um, The person who wants to know Jesus, or is it more obvious? Like, who do we, I think what this question is asking, like, who do we continue to pursue with the gospel message? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... Um, you know, the Bible says preach the gospel to every creature on the earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so with the parable of lost sheep, what that's talking about is that God's the kind of God who leaves the 99 and chases after the one in order to save them. And so the question is, who is the one? And the answer is, it could be anyone, right? Could be anyone. And so our responsibility is to share the good news of the gospel with anyone because the gospel is the means by which God saves people, okay? So let me give you a couple analogies that have been helpful to me, okay? One is the analogy of conception, through sex, okay? Imagine if you were talking to a married couple and they said to you that they were trying to get pregnant. 
and you were like, oh, you're trying to get pregnant. And then they just offered this information up, because of course you never asked. They said, but we're not having sex. Really? They're like, yeah. We read in the Bible that God knits people together in their mother's womb. And so because God knits people together in their mother's womb, and we know that just because you have sex doesn't mean you're going to have a baby, we're just trusting God to make us a baby. So we feel like it's kind of more godly just to wait for God to do it. Or you talk to a farmer, right? And he's like, you know what? I planted seeds a lot of times in my field, but I have never made corn grow. And so he says, this year, I decided to just let God do his thing. So I've just been watching TV, letting God put my crop in, and I'm just waiting for him to grow it in the fall. To both of those people, you'd be like, you are crazy. Just because God grows crops and makes babies doesn't mean that seed and sex aren't necessary for both of those things to happen. And in a similar way, just because God is the one who makes someone a Christian doesn't mean the gospel is not necessary. It's not incidental that in Scripture, those are the two most common metaphors for salvation. You must be born again through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, the seed is the gospel, right? Or, you know, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. So the agricultural and the sexual metaphor are the two main metaphors because I think they paint for us the best picture of what we're talking about here. The way that God saves people is through the means of the gospel. So in other words, if no one on earth ever preached the gospel to anyone else again, no one would be saved. So God is so good and so sovereign that he's actually entrusted that message to us, which is why I've given my life to preaching that message over and over and over again. And what we're going to continue to see, what we've already seen, is God continue to save hundreds and hundreds of people. I hope thousands in the city through our church family. Awesome. Well, thanks, Drew, for fielding our questions this evening. I'm going to pray for us. Yeah, yeah you can give me a Thanks for bearing with us. I'm going to pray for us and just dismiss you guys. Would you just bow your heads and pray with me? Yeah, Father, thank you for um, your great wisdom. God, if you... If you were a God that we could fully understand and put in a box and just point to and say, this, this is my God, I know him fully, I understand every facet of him, what kind of a God would you be? God, thank you for being greater um, than whatever we make you to be in our minds. God, would you um, give us grace as we wrestle with the parts of you that we don't understand or maybe don't like, God? Um, would you give us grace and that, God, would you um, put the fire in our hearts to share the gospel with people? God, we, we don't know your mind. We don't know who you've chosen before time. And so, God, would you give us boldness um, to declare the gospel to our friends around us? God, would you give us boldness and urgency to go across the earth and declare the gospel to people? It is the power to save. And so would you... Um, would you bear with us as we, as we wrestle with this idea, God? Would we not um, slow down 
in our desire to, to tell people about you, God, would we um, push forth, would we accelerate forward in expanding your kingdom and sharing the good news of the gospel with people? Um, and God, would you um, minister to us as we walk through this? Would you give us peace and understanding and um, love, God? I pray that you um, help us to not miss out on the joy um, that is there to be had as being adopted as sons and daughters um, of you, that we are co-heirs with Christ. God, would we um, not let things that we don't fully understand yet steal our joy, um, but would we hold them in tension, and would we, um, would we be able to live in that joy as we hold that tension, God? Would you bless us with these things? We pray in your name. Amen. And thank you guys for coming. You're dismissed. You guys are loved, and we'll see you next week.